my friends. It is great to be with you again today on the Everyday Missionary Podcast. This is episode 223. It is the holiday season. I actually have a holiday podcast I plan to do the week before Christmas. It's all related to just an incredible prayer that Mary has and what that prayer probably means for the world and how that prayer even kind of foreshadows the message of Jesus and what he comes to do and how his kingdom's so different. And I'm looking forward to that. But until then, you have to just kind of put up with some of my musings and rantings and just things that I'm thinking about because that's much of what this podcast really tries to do. It just brings you into my own wrestling, my own brain, because at the core of what I really believe is that the message of Jesus changes the world, and I believe that that change is most felt when his people most take seriously what that message entails, what it requires of our daily lives, what it really asks us to do, and the margins of the difficult things of our world. And that's where I think Christianity really shines, right? Or maybe I want to say that a little differently. Where I think Jesus shines is when Jesus's people take his words at face value and they live those out, that that's what they're committed to. They're committed to that more than their own comfort, more than their own rights, more than their own ease, more than their own agenda, more than their own privileges, whatever it is, we go... Everything that I have, I want to leverage for the good of Christ and kingdom. Like, that's the sweet spot. As opposed to everything I have, uh, I've earned. Everything I have, I want to maintain. And then I want Jesus somehow in the mix of all of that. But I want my American dream plus Jesus as opposed to I'm going to use whatever American dream I've had afforded to me. I'm going to use that all in the name of Jesus, even if that means loss for me in some capacity. All right. So those are two different visions, I think. And I think the vision of I leverage everything for Jesus and I'm not trying to protect everything, but rather I'm trying to administer everything as a responsible steward for the goodness of the kingdom to advance in the world. Like that thing right there, that's what gets me excited. That will get me out of bed. That's the thing that continues to motivate me even on the toughest days, right? Where I'm like, is it worth continuing in this process? Is it worth continuing to try to be a part of uh, kind of the evangelical machine and system and ideology and and kind of social framework? And and I go, you know what? What matters is again advancing the cause of Jesus, even in systems or places or times where that's been a little bit corrupted. And some of your worst persecution is not going to come from the disbelieving world, but from the those who claim Jesus world. Like that's where you're going to get the most punked. And yet, even for all of that, saying, but it's worth it because this message really does change things. This is the message of healing that brings flourishing and blessing to the nations, which is God's big agenda from beginning to end of the Bible. His whole goal is to bless the world, to transform the world, uh, to bring lasting and true change from the inside out of people's lives. And as that inside out spills out into our world, it makes a real difference. That's what this is all about, right? So with that, I can't help but think about all of the um, known or unknown toxins that can get in the way of us doing that. And it either gets in the way of us doing that because it either taints our own inner perspectives and so we become self 
focused versus selfless focused. That's one way it happens. Or two, we get tainted. We think that what we're defending and fighting for and everything else is right when it's probably kingdom wrong. And in the process, outsiders see that. They assume that that's the stuff of Jesus when it's not. And so we actually uh, kind of sabotage the gospel or we sabotage the message of the kingdom um, because of these broken perspectives. So my brain focuses on that a lot because I think that actually is the real difference between true fruit and just religiosity. It's the difference between doing Jesus stuff and doing religious stuff in the name of Jesus. Because I think there is a difference between Jesus and religion. And I think you can talk a lot about Jesus in religion, but not see a lot of Jesus in religion. Uh, And I want to make sure that we don't fall victim to that. And so if our mission is to be everyday missionaries, we're missionaries for Jesus. We have to think like him, act like him, focus like him. You get the drill, right? So that's a lot of the thing. And what I've been thinking about maybe a little bit lately is this word it keeps haunting my mind. Um, and it's the word entitled. Um, and all of us know this word, right? Because if you meet somebody that comes across as entitled, it really sits poor with you, doesn't it? Like you don't dig an entitled person. In fact, you think they're kind of snobbish. They're above everybody else. They seem to be kind of demanding. The world has to revolve around them. They're entitled in that sense. And when I think about our shared faith within the context of our current social climate, I keep like reading articles in my Christian publications and things like that. And I keep seeing these different legal actions being taken by Christian organizations or churches or Christian leaders or whatever else. Just lots of legal action nowadays. Lawyers are just doing great right now when it comes to Christianity and and attorneys and everything else. And I keep reading this stuff and I go, man, it just sounds entitled. Like all of these different lawsuits, all of these complaints, all of these, even sometimes like things that are genuinely problematic. Like, yes, that might be some kind of bias against Christianity. The tone in even a potential actual bias still sounds like for the Christian that we're sort of entitled. Like, wait a minute, we have rights, we have protections, we have these these things that are afforded to us in our society that are protected, and we're demanding that you actually comply with what is given to us, or we're going to kind of throw a fit here, you know? And I go, that's that's the essence of entitlement. Now, I know some people say, well, wait, though, Matt, there are laws that protect us. And why are you bagging on the laws that protect us? Here's what I've been thinking about with this. Right. And this gets into a lot of things that I talk about here on the podcast. Um, but but I think about like Paul, for example. So let me give a little bit of a structure to this. So um, we tend to say, well, what's different between our culture now and maybe what the Christians were dealing with in Rome is that that was an empire, but this is a republic. Uh, They didn't have rights as citizens, but we have rights as citizens. And that's actually very flawed thinking. First of all, while Rome was an empire, it was also a republic, right? So it was a republic turned empire, but some of the underpinnings of the republic were still a part of the empire. And one of the things was you could be a Roman citizen. And if you were a Roman citizen, there were laws that were afforded to you to protect you as a citizen, even in the context of the empire. And one of the things we see is that Paul was, in fact, a Roman citizen, and he plays his Roman citizen card in the book of Acts when he is kind of unjustly arrested 
and uh, beaten up for it and everything else. And he plays the card of you guys have arrested and mistreated a Roman citizen. And the leaders or the people in power at that moment went, oh, crap, we are going to, in fact, be in trouble because we violated this man's rights as a citizen. Now, here's what's interesting about what Paul does with the citizenship. He doesn't play that card for his freedom. He doesn't play that card so that his church can regather for worship. He doesn't play that card to promote his own self-value or his own self-preservation. He plays that card so that he can get all the way to the emperor himself and share the gospel. In other words, Paul only plays the card of his citizenship, not for self-protection or self-preservation, but rather to find an excuse, a reason, an opening, a door, whatever, to go and testify about Christ to the most powerful person on the planet as they understood their world, right? That's why he uses and how he uses his citizenship. So he doesn't use the laws that are there to protect him to protect him. He uses the laws that are there to protect him to actually make much of Jesus, to act like Jesus and think like Jesus and to promote Jesus, even at his own personal cost. And so oddly enough, Paul plays the citizen card and it leads to his eventual death. But for Paul, that's that's all he wanted to do was go and preach Christ and let Christ handle the rest. He didn't play the card of his citizenship to keep himself from suffering. He plays the card to make much of the one who suffered for all of us, right? And that gives us a framework of how to operate. And and, and so from that, I think what we need to begin to embrace, and I think what we've forgotten, and then we're constantly running around in this entitled privilege thing of you can't do this to me. What we're missing is when the, the screws are tightened on the life of the Christian, that is the opportunity to show how otherworldly we are by loving our enemies praying for those who are against us, doing good to those people. It it doesn't mean we get a lawyer and we complain about how unjust this is, right? That actually scrambles the entire message. It says, no, we're afraid of the powers that be and we need to leverage might with might so we can get what we are owed or we deserve. And what gets lost in that is the opportunity to highlight and showcase the very essence of the love and grace and even forgiveness of Jesus, In fact, what we're trying to do is remove the potential for persecution from the table by pursuing litigation or complaint or, again, this kind of privileged, um, I'm entitled to certain things and there's so much noise about that that Jesus just gets drowned out in the process. See, it's strange when you think about how often in the Gospels Jesus warned of, hey, you're not going to be liked, you're going to be persecuted, beat up on, mistreated, maligned. You're going to lose certain rights and certain privileges in your society. You're not going to be able to make money or sell goods or whatever else. Like he warns time and again, he's like, if you want to follow me, here's what this is going to look like. And yet when you do it my way in those contexts, people see there's something different about you. You are not bound by the constraints and the fears of this world. And that is how you overcome the world. You don't bow your knee to the fears of the world, but rather you stand with courage, with calm, with quiet when the world is set against you. Like that's, that's the architecture of the whole idea. That is the, like the golden ticket of the gospel is you're showing this world doesn't have a grip on you. But when we get all privileged and entitled and freaked out and then we get our attorneys and we start fighting the system and we start making demands of it and we start calling it names and we talk about how unjust it is and this is unfair and this is hypocritical, 
We sound just like the world in almost every way, except we're chaining the glorious name of Jesus to all of that complaining and all of that fear and all of that demanding. And Jesus is obscured and our own privileges are elevated and the gospel loses and all of that. That's the problem. And so even just this week, I was reading about some stuff and um, it was basically, you know, just more religious institutions making demands of state officials or whatever else. And I thought, it's so strange. It's like what Christians are doing and have been doing, or at least leaders in our Christian ranks have been doing now for a while, is demanding the right to worship a Jesus openly that we look nothing like when we make those demands, right? I want that to sink in for a minute. When we run around demanding the right to worship Jesus openly, but we look nothing like the Jesus we're demanding the privilege of worshiping openly, we undermine Jesus completely. Like I think about this all throughout his ministry, um, Jesus didn't make a great many demands of anything. And certainly when we get to the end of his life and we get to the cross, he's making zero demands of anything. And what then compels us to Jesus is that very scene. Like this is what's super strange. If you ask most any of us, like, what do you think is so profound about things from the uh, the day Jesus rides into town, the final week of his life, the day he rides in all the way to the moment of his final breath and death? What mesmerizes you about this dude? And it's the fact that, you know what? He doesn't freak out against his enemies. He doesn't rail against them in these outlandish ways. He doesn't make demands of, hey, I'm God's kid and I should be allowed to live. I'm God's kid. Get off the throne. It's my throne. You know, he doesn't do any of that, right? It's like there's this altogether different perspective where people lie about him and he doesn't try to clarify it. People are arrayed against him and he just lets it roll. His friends ditch him and he still brings them back. One of his friends totally betrays him and he's still like, dude, man, I care about you. You know, if you're going to go do this, do it quickly. And, and, and so there, there, there's just this spirit in Jesus that is so radically different. And that makes us go, that's why we believe that he was God become man for us because he did what no human being would normally do, right? He lays down his arms. He says, my kingdom's not of this world. He doesn't retaliate. He does not demand. He does not articulate except to say like, hey, this is a part of the plan. And even on the cross, when the entire world is arrayed against him, he's praying for him. He's asking God to forgive them. When he's got thieves on both sides of him who have demanded this uh, execution on their lives, like they've earned this and then they're mocking him. He doesn't mock them in return or say, oh, you just wait because you're both going to be dead in a couple of hours and you're going to see me face to face. And then that's when I have my just dessert. He doesn't do that. In fact, one of the dudes finally realizes like, wait, I have backed the wrong horse here. Jesus, don't forget me today in paradise. And Jesus is like, I promise you're going to be with me in paradise. So Jesus forgives the guy that just like 20 minutes earlier was mocking him, right? See, all of this is the marching orders for us. All of this shows us what we're supposed to do. And you see that in 1 Peter chapter 2, where he talks about this idea that, hey man, Jesus suffered and left us an example to follow, right? Where it says then he isn't cursing people and yelling at people and mad at people and making demands and telling them where they're wrong. He just is showing a fortitude 
of meekness, which is strength under control for the bigger picture that the world is changed by sacrifice and by love, not by privilege and demand, right? That is critical for us. It's critical for all of us. And and I know so often I, 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 I get burdened in the podcast because they know it always feels like, okay, Matt's just here to take us to the woodshed again and everything else. No, I, I that's not my heart. My heart is like, man, I hope this inspires us to be like, yeah, that's right. We got to dig deep and make a difference. And a real difference isn't complaining. A real difference isn't pointing out that, hey, the world might be persecuting Christians. Like, well, that's a given. Like, that's a super given. In fact, my problem nowadays is I think Christians are yelling around and calling out persecution when it's not. It's just getting our licks for being dumb, A. Or B, even if it is persecution, how are we told to face it? With joy, right? Not with litigation, with joy. We're supposed to be like high-fiving one another over this. Like, hey, we are counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. You see that in the book of Acts, right? In fact, in Philippians, it even says, hey, it's been given to you not only to believe in Jesus, but to also suffer for his namesake. Paul says that like it's a gift. You have the gift not only to believe in Jesus, but man, you get an even better gift. You get to suffer for his name, right? In fact, in John, his first little letter, he says, hey, if you say you claim to know God, then you're going to live just as Jesus lived. You're going to act and react just as Jesus lived, acted, and reacted. Otherwise, he's like, you don't really know Jesus. See, that's where I get back to my little thesis here of saying, demanding the right to worship a Jesus we look nothing like undermines the gospel, undermines Jesus, and frankly, all of these demands of we should be allowed to do this and we should be allowed to do that because we have all of these religious rights and liberties and everything else. In the end, Jesus is probably just shaking his head going, that's so awesome that you're you're making all of these rules and requirements to protect you from being mistreated, but how does that look like me in the process of that? How does that sound like me in the process of that? How does that compel your persecutors to consider me in the process of that? If there's anything I know, it's this. Uh, when I deal with somebody else and they put up a fight against me, I'm going to put up a fight against them, right? It just creates this cycle. And so if we have the mind of Christ and we're supposed to have the priorities of Christ and then somebody sets their will against us as Christians and then we decide we're going to retaliate against their action, I guarantee you those people on the other side are not like, oh man, we should really consider this Jesus who's so feisty, you know, like because these Christians, man, they, they suddenly are saying a lot of things and making a lot of demands and have all these expectations and requiring us to follow all these rules and we really should consider their Jesus because he sounds so utterly different than anything else. No, they go, that's just the same as everybody else. That's the same problem. Everybody just fights and jockeys for power and makes demands. And it's sad because again, it doesn't showcase Jesus. And so this is the space that again, we need to begin to inhabit more and more where we're not, not getting pulled into the entitlement trap. Because again, that is just the word that resonates with me over and over and over again as I continue to read, to see, to listen, to talk with fellow Christians at times. It just sounds entitled. Part of that entitlement is we're a Christian nation founded on Christian principles and our founders were all Christians and we need to get back to it being Christian. And therefore there's this, we're entitled based on heritage or we're entitled based on constitution or we're entitled based on just all the other kind of rules and laws that come out of the Constitution. We're entitled because government can't do this to us. This We're entitled because fellow citizens can't do this to us. We're allowed to protect our heritage as we see fit. And again, I keep going, I just don't see that on the lips of Jesus. I don't see that in the heart 
of Jesus, and I certainly don't see it in the marching orders of Jesus at all, right? Even when people say, oh, but there was a time when Jesus flipped tables. I'm like, right, you know why he flipped a table? To close church for the day. In other words, instead of we have the right to worship, Jesus is like, baloney you do, flips a table. We're not worshiping today. We're closing this shop up because, and the problem is the same. I'm closing this shop up in essence because you are not a light to the nations. You are so captivated by your own right to worship in your ways, you are, you are literally closing the doors of the kingdom to the world around you. That's why he flips tables. He will flip a table every time his people are failing to be his light, failing to be his missionaries, fail, failing to be his hands and feet and heart to the world. When it becomes about them more than others, he will flip that table every single time. And so when people use the table flipping thing, like this is when we're supposed to stand up, I'm like, you didn't even read the story, did you? You just like the fact that it's violent. You like the fact that he busts out a whip and he's flipping tables. He goes Indiana Jones on the whole like temple scene. And you're missing the point that it's directed toward religion who is failing to be like God to the world, right? It's always going to be the problem. They were so entitled. They failed to, to, to really live out the idea that that was to be a place of prayer, of connecting with God for all the nations. That's why he closes it down. And I believe he still closes down churches and regions and churches and areas or whatever else for the same kind of stuff, right? He's like, man, if you guys are just becoming self-consumed, then it's all on your strength. I am, I'm no longer running with you. This is your power and it will eventually grind down over the course of time. And what's tragic about that is that oftentimes the casualties of that are fellow believers and also those outside of the church that are curious, but then see the chaos and crazy and say, I don't want any part of that because man, it looks just like the world. All, what they're doing is just earthly in the name of Jesus, and it's not Jesus-like and Jesus-feeling. And so my hope in the podcast today is that you don't feel scolded. In fact, probably at this point, many of the people are listening to the podcast in part are listening because of this very message right here, this idea that, hey, we can do it better, we should do it better. We need to do it better. And we want to do it better. And part of that is just learning where we've got some of our own hidden spots and biases and everything else and trying to break loose of that so that we can better represent Jesus as he's meant to be represented. And and in that, it, it's truly believing his words, right? Not just believing in this iconic Jesus figure and the fact that he saves me, a sinner, but more than that, it's believing that actually what he calls us to do is what we're meant to do and that we're going to do those things at our own personal cost even because that's the only way the world is tra transformed and changed, right? Like we have to just believe that. And I think that's what this always kind of boils down to. We don't actually believe that there is joy in persecution. We don't actually believe that there is real reward for suffering. And so we try to mitigate persecution and suffering in our American culture by using the legal system or by using our religious liberties or whatever else. And and it just, it, it robs us of greater blessing and it robs the world of getting to see the gospel in action the gospel in the lives of people. It's robbing of the beauty of people saying, oh, how Jesus went to the cross is how his people still live. And like that, that makes me want to understand more. See, again, when we're just entitled, demanding, standing up against the man, showing we're not afraid of him in any way, but doing it with like a swagger, with like an attitude, right? Like, go ahead, bring it, bring it. You know, that, that thing, that ain't Jesus. 
that ain't Jesus at all. And if you go, no, Matt, I think it is, then please let me know. Please walk me through the gospels and say, see, here's where Jesus has the swagger against the man. See, the only place Jesus has swagger against the man is actually religion. It's actually those who claim God, claim the Bible, uh, claim the covenant, right? Like he looks at those people and that's where he busts out the whip, flips the table and says, you missed it. You missed it because you're not showing God to the world. You've missed it because your religion's about your fulfillment, your sense of spirituality, your sense of, ooh, this is so good, so rich, so deep, just lets my mind just wander in the rich depths of God's truth and and doesn't practice it. Like, that's what he's busting out on, right? Like, that whole thing. And we're meant to be better than that. And we're filled with the Spirit to be better than that. And he's given us the capacity for fruit to be far better than that, right? He just says, you got to stay connected to me and I will bear my fruit through you. Do not take this world into your own hands and certainly do not bow to it in any conceivable way, letting it be your power structure or being fearful of its power structure, but rather be my people in my way, relying on me, loving like I loved, caring like I cared, forgiving like I forgave, praying like I told you to pray, living your life in such a way that you are living and holy sacrifices, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, that we live as sacrifices to the world around us, sacrifice in the name of Jesus, sacrificing our own good, our own prosperity, or whatever else for the greater good of all by being like Jesus in tough spaces. Like, and when we do that, oh man, he says, that's that's the sweet spot. That is again that golden ticket. That is what it means to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Listen, I don't want to demand the right to worship Jesus. I would rather just be like Jesus right? Be like Jesus. Even if the world's saying, you're no longer allowed to do that. We're going to take that right from you. Why, why would I, why complain about that? Why try to engineer against that? You know what a better, more fulfilling kind of thing would be that probably would actually bring real change? Um, that I would joyfully worship Jesus in those kinds of spaces and not let the, the outside forces get me down. And man, from that, it shows you have transcended the, the stuff of the world and you really are embodying the things of the kingdom, and you really believe there's a greater reward on the other side for that posture. And that even in that, it's what God will use to reach other people because that's the one thing you see throughout Christian history. It's when Christians act like Jesus in the hard stuff, that's where people really get saved. You want to see where people leave the church in droves, and you want to see where the church shrinks in a culture like the United States? It's when we stop living and thinking and acting and reacting like Jesus, and we're just doing stuff in religious tones for religious fulfillment because we become religious people. Nothing about that is compelling. It drives people away. It causes people to step out uh, and it doesn't breed a new generation of Jesus followers because it's hard to find Jesus amongst the followers. Now, again, I'm not saying this is all of us or anything else. What I'm saying is we just need to have a clear vision of what really accomplishes the goals and a clear vision of what really makes the difference. And if we're running around complaining, we're running around griping, we're running around worried, we're running around like the sky is falling and we're concerned about what the government or what people are gonna do to us, we're worried about if we're gonna have the rights and privileges we've been afforded and and we're not thinking and respecting and responding like Jesus in the midst of it, it doesn't matter then. 
We just need to be honest and say, you know what? I just want Jesus as a part of my already kind of entitled life. And uh, that's all I want to care about. But I know we care about more and we want to embody more. And I think the more we just kind of, kind of keep working the plays over in our mind again and again, right? Just like a football team or any kind of sporting entity that really wants to visualize how the game is going to go. They're just working the plays in the mind over and over again. That's kind of what this podcast is designed to do, to work the play over in our mind again and again and again, to be reminded, oh yeah, it's kingdom stuff. Oh yeah, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Oh yeah, the Sermon on the Plain. Oh yeah, the fruit of the Spirit. Oh yeah, the definition of love. That's right. That's the play. We run those plays. This is how we run the ball. We pound the rock time and again, time and again. This is what we have to do in this world. We have to be like Jesus when we're tempted to not be like Jesus in the name of Jesus, because that's the problem. We get tempted to not be like Jesus in the name of Jesus to somehow protect this, this entity system thing, but in the end, to what purpose, to what end, to what goal? If it doesn't look like Jesus, that's a bad thing. It needs to always look like Jesus, no matter what the cost. And I believe the more we're running those plays and thinking in those ways and gravitating to those truths, the more we will be effective everyday missionaries. 